You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. We turn this morning to the minor prophet Micah chapter 5. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. It will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. When the Assyrian invades our land and marches through our fortresses, we will raise against him seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will rule the land of Assyria with a sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrian when he invades our land and marches into our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for man or linger for mankind. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumphs over your enemies." And all your foes will be destroyed. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and will no longer cast, you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your carved images and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath upon the nations that have not obeyed me. We turn this morning for our text to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 2, the verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. 
He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. When coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, has it ever struck you that these opening chapters of Matthew's gospel are rather strange and somewhat curious? He opens with what many people would consider to be a boring genealogy, even an insulting genealogy. After all, in it are questionable women like Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, even to some extent Ruth. And in it are also rebellious kings like Uzziah, Ahaz, and Manasseh. And next he gives us a birth account of our Lord, that hardly mentions Mary at all and is dominated by Joseph. And then he gives us one of the shortest birth announcements, surely, in history. She gave birth to a son. And then it adds, Joseph gave him the name Jesus. And that's pretty well it. No manger is mentioned, no angels, no shepherd, no glory, nothing. Strange, we would say, in comparison to Luke's account. But you know, it gets even stranger, for nothing more is said until Matthew recounts something that most likely happened some weeks or months later. Wise men come from the east. Magi, they're called. And who are they? Well, no names are given in the Bible, although tradition has it that they're called Melchior, Belshazzar, and Casper. How many of these wise men are there? Well, again, notice the Bible gives us no number, although tradition says there were three of them. And what office, what particular office did they hold? Well, again, the Bible says nothing about that, but tradition says they are kings. Some of you know the Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. In short, you can say there's a lot of mystery here. There's lots of questions, not just about their identity and their number and their office, but also about their particular role. Why does Matthew bring these people into the gospel picture? Why does he spend more time writing about Herod and wise men and a star than he does directly about the birth of Christ? And why does he include them and leave out so many other what we would consider to be pertinent details? In other words, what's so important about them and they're coming. 
Now, beloved, I'd like to preach to you this morning on the following theme. The Magi come to worship the newborn king of the Jews. We're going to look at, first of all, the Lord's unexpected guidance or unusual guidance. And the words unexpected fulfillment. And finally, the Magi's unrestrained worship. Well, beloved, as you can see, chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel opens with Magi or wise men coming from the east and entering the city of Jerusalem, asking all kinds of rather disturbing questions. Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? Where is this new royal baby? Lead us to him. We want to worship him. But yet as they ask these questions, they get no answers. Only dumb stares. And probably some dumb comments as well. What are you talking about? There's been no royal birth in Jerusalem or in the land. There is no new king. Maybe you got the wrong address. Maybe you got the wrong country. Maybe you're thousands of miles off course. But nevertheless, it appears that the Magi persist. And they even make somewhat of an uproar. And finally, even King Herod gets to hear about them and their vexing questions. Matthew says he was disturbed. And no wonder. King Herod, you need to understand, has been already zealously guarding his throne for decades. He may not be a king with a lot of power and freedom, but at least he's a king and he means to stay a king. You see, King Herod really is a vassal king. He has to bow and scrape before the Romans every day. He has to do their bidding. He has to keep them happy. His hold on power is at best very tenuous. Well, almost every day he is reminded in one way or another that he is an underking, if you like. Probably not that long ago he had been busy with this decree from Caesar Augustus about enrolling everybody and probably it cost him a bit of time and probably some money and some manpower. It had been one more reminder to him as to who is really in control. But still, King Herod did whatever he could to protect his little turf. Why, he even went to extraordinary measures to protect it, even to very ruthless and gruesome efforts. Anyone who was seen as a potential rival to King Herod was killed. Even most of his own family was murdered by him. His One of his wives, his sons... All dead. All sacrificed to protect Herod and his wobbly throne. Yes, and the people knew this. Indeed, probably some of the people laughed bitterly and commented carefully when these magi came to Jerusalem and asked about a newborn king of the Jews. What newborn king of the Jews? All we have is this old goat who sits on the throne and who claims he's a Jew, but actually he's not really a Jew at all. And as for a newborn king, impossible. Herod would have murdered him long ago. 
So, beloved, now you can see why King Herod was disturbed when these fellas come knocking on the door in Jerusalem. He views them and he views their announcement as a threat to his position and power. But, of course, there's more. There's always more going on behind the scenes. You remember a few weeks ago in connection with Queen Azaliah who tried to exterminate the entire house of, of David? We said there you have proof once again of that age-old enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But here it rears its ugly head again. Herod represents evil. He's allied to the devil. He's just one more tool in the hands of the Satan to try to get rid of the Christ. Waiting to devour the child, as Revelation 12 puts it very symbolically. And so what does evil King Herod do? He begins to plot and scheme. First he calls the chief priests and the teachers of the law together and he begins to ask them questions not about the the magi but about this newborn king that they're looking at, looking for. Who is he? When will he be born? Where will he be born? And all these teachers, they scurry back to their studies and they look around in the scriptures and they zero in finally on Matthew 5 verse 2, Bethlehem of Ephrathah. That's what the prophet Micah said is going to be the place. That's where he'll be born. This new king. Thereafter, Herod invites the Magi to meet with him. He wants to pump them for more information. He wants to know more about this star that they keep talking about, this star that somehow told them that there was a newborn king of the Jews, and and, and when did it first appear, and what did it actually look like, and, and how did it precisely lead them all the way to his door? And finally, he urges them to go to Bethlehem, find the child, report back to him, And he does it all under the guise that he too is eager and enthusiastic about going to Bethlehem to meet this child. Still, beloved, what must have bothered Herod most of all in all of this is that that star. You know, that special leading, guiding star. That probably caused them a few sleepless nights. What's going on here? Yes, and Herod is not the only one who wonders about that star. Throughout history, there have been many questions about it. Why, you know, almost during every festive season and everything leading up to Christmas, you'll find at least one article in a paper somewhere asking, was there really a star? And what kind of a star was it? And how did they know that this star was pointing them to the newborn king of the Jews? As you can imagine, all sorts of answers have been given. 
to those questions. Of course, there are those who discount the story altogether and say it's simply fantasy. Others say, however, that it did happen and that the Magi knew about its significance and its meaning because they were able to read the stars. These kind of people also tend to put a lot of scope or a lot of store in astrology and horoscopes. I'm not sure whether any of you are into that, but it's rather popular. Take the daily newspaper and you look up where you're born approximately, you see, and then you read what's supposed to be happening in your life. And, of course, if you read the next person's over and the next after, you'll find exactly the same thing you can apply to yourself. But still, there is this idea that somehow the stars determine our fate. And so did these magi possess supernatural powers? Perhaps some conclude they possessed astrological powers. But as for supernatural powers, hardly. For, beloved, the position of the stars do not determine human destiny. The stars do not telegraph special information about special people to special people. Now, there is a more plausible Explanation here. For notice, beloved, these men, they have come from the east. They have come from Babylon. From Mesopotamia, that part of the world. Yes, and in Babylon, something special had happened centuries before. And what had happened? Well, Babylon had received a new infusion of knowledge and insight. The Old Testament scriptures had arrived there. Those Jews exiled to Babylon had brought those scriptures. And something else, a new wise man had appeared and had dominated the scene in Babylon for decades. He was called Daniel. Daniel became one of Babylon's leading teachers, and scholars. Daniel chapter 2 verse 48 tells us that he was in charge of all of Babylon's magi. His influence was enormous. And something else, his influence found its way into the textbooks and into the theological curriculum of Babylonia. And what shape did that influence take? Well, surely this, that the God of Israel really is Lord of heaven and earth and that the Messiah is coming. That a newborn king of the Jews would one day appear. But when and how would the people know? Daniel answers that by pointing the Magi of Babylon to their favorite subject, which was the stars. Yes, and to one star in particular. Daniel says a special star is going to appear to announce the arrival of this king. How did Daniel know this? Where did he get it from? Did he make it up? 
Now, beloved, he got it from Numbers 24, verse 17. From the fourth oracle of the false prophet Balaam. You remember Balaam who was completely taken over by the Lord in terms of his prophecy? And Balaam who said at a certain point in his fourth prophecy, a star will come out of Jacob. And so what have the Magi of Babylon been doing for all these years? They did what they always did. They studied the stars. But one day, a special star appeared in the east, a new star, a bright star, a mystery star. It perplexed them. It forced them to go back to their books and to do their research. And what do they find? The legacy of Daniel. The teaching of the coming of a special star that would announce the birth of the king of the Jews, the Messiah. And what do they do once they figure that out? They got on their camels or their donkeys and they went east looking for a king. Yes, and ultimately they find the king. They arrive in Jerusalem, as we noted, and they're told about the town of Bethlehem. They leave Jerusalem. They travel to Bethlehem. They now know the way, but they also receive confirmation that they're on the right path. Verse 9 says, the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And there they found the newborn king of the Jews. Now, beloved, all of that represents a very exciting story. And it's no wonder that Matthew chooses to tell it. It's a story that's caught the imagination as well as the speculation of many. But you can say it's more than just a story. It's also a lesson in guidance. A lesson, you might say, in God's most unusual kind of guidance. For look at it again. What do you see here? Actually, what you see is, and I put it in a bit of theological terminology, but natural revelation leads to special revelation, which in turn leads to saving. Revelation. That star. In a way, that star represents God's natural revelation. God manifesting His great and miraculous power over creation. And then there is special revelation as you find it in Micah chapter 5. About Bethlehem. God's word, in other words, tells us more than nature ever can about his plan of redemption as well as about the birth of the Christ child. 
And finally, we have the child himself. And what is the child but God's saving revelation? It reminds us once again that God's revelation always climaxes in the the coming, in the work, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Yes, and we need to take all of this to heart. And we need to learn something from it as well. You know, nature is great. Nature tells us about the power, the wisdom, the might, the majesty, the greatness of our God as the creator of heaven and earth. And and the Bible, too, is great, inspired, infallible, inerrant. It teaches us the way of salvation and what we need in order to live and to thrive. But, you know, when all is said and done, It's still Jesus Christ who is the most essential of all. Both natural and special revelation need to lead us to him and to faith in him. And, you know, to stop short of that is nothing else than disaster. And that's what many people do. They say, we see God in nature. I'd rather go canoeing than go to church. That's enough. Or they say, we we know the Bible. We don't need to get together with other people. It's enough. But it's not enough. If you don't have Christ of the Word, you'll ultimately have nothing. You know, that, by the way, was the problem of the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew the Word of God inside and out. They could tell you exactly what was in every book of the Old Testament. They could quote large sections of it by heart. But you know, in spite of all that sacred knowledge, Jesus Christ himself says, later on, they're dead. Dead in their sin and their trespass because all of this biblical knowledge has not led them to Christ. And that's what it's meant to do. That's why we have special revelation, natural revelation. It's all to lead us to Christ. Do we understand that, beloved? It's great that we know and we see and recognize God in His creation. It's great that we know the Bible. But don't stop there. You and I need to know the King of creation and the Lord of the Word. Otherwise, it's all for nothing. As the Magi were led from the star to the Word to the child. That's ultimately how it has to be with all of us. We can't stop until we come to Christ. And when we come to Christ, we finally come to rest 
and peace and salvation. He is our goal, our destination. He's the end of the road. Yes, and he's supposed to be that for all people. And indeed, that's probably why God brings, and Matthew brings the the wise men into the picture here. I don't think Matthew does it because the story is exciting or because these guys happen to be rather cute or quaint. There's something else here. There's something else going on, and that's about really what Matthew is telling us is that a whole new phase in redemptive history in God's redeeming program is about to begin. And it's a phase that had been prophesied many, many years before. It goes all the way back to Father Abraham. You remember how God made a covenant with Abraham? And in that covenant, God said to Abraham, you're going to get a son, you're going to get a land, you're going to get a posterity, a people. And you know, in due time, that son turned out to be Isaac, that land turned out to be Canaan, and that people turned out to be Israel. But that's not the end of it. But the fulfillment didn't stop there. Isaac, the son of promise, turned out to point to the even greater son of promise, Jesus Christ. And Canaan, that land on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, in turn points us to an even greater land, the new heaven and the new earth and Israel. Israel, that one nation in turn is meant to point us to many nations and many peoples. Did God not say to Abraham, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed? In other words, through you, Abraham, salvation will come. To all people. Yes, and isn't that what we see here? The Magi come to Bethlehem. And the Magi are different from all the other visitors. Because the Magi are not Jewish. They come from the East. They come from the nations. They're Gentiles, outsiders, unclean, uncircumcised, outside of the covenant. In other words, they're like you and I used to be. By birth and ancestry, Gentiles. But yet, beloved, these magi, they represent the promise of the future. The promise of God to Abraham. They let us know that soon this great ingathering is about to take place. That the gospel is about to go beyond Israel to the nations. Even to our forefathers. And ultimately to us as well. The 
progress of the gospel into all the world is one of history's most exciting stories and dramas. And it's something that should still thrill us today and, and have our attention because, beloved, the gospel today is still marching, marching forward. You travel to other parts of the world and you hear stories how the gospel is continuing to change lives. Filling them with hope and peace and joy and meaning and happiness. And how about us? We're about to enter the year of our Lord 2009. Will we enter it with still a burning commitment to our Lord and Savior as well? Or is perhaps the flame among us flickering out? Has the routine of religion taken over in your life? Has boredom with the gospel started to seep into your bones? Are other loyalties beginning to steal away your love? Just how enthusiastic are we about being included in the saving work of Jesus Christ? I ask that because also there's no doubt about the Magi and what they do next. You notice they go to Bethlehem. You see the star again. It even says they're overjoyed. And they come to the house where Mary, Joseph, and the child are staying. And what do they do? The first thing they do is they bow. And that means they're acknowledging that they are in the presence of someone greater, mightier, better, higher, possibly and they are. And the second thing they do is they worship. They openly confess this child to be the king of the Jews, perhaps even the Messiah of the world. They speak about him. They probably speak to him. Maybe they even sang to him. And they speak to his parents as well. And the third thing they do is they give him gifts. Gold, incense, Myrrh, in other words, gifts fit for a king. You'll notice, of course, three different types of gifts are mentioned, and this has led some to assume that, well, if there are three gifts, there have to be three magi. It doesn't say that. That's simply a conclusion we jump to. It's part of the speculation that goes on around this particular episode. But you know, we shouldn't get lost in speculation. We, we should see this for what it is, namely a great act of worship. These men do what God wants them to do, and that is namely worship the king. Yes, these men. These foreigners, 
These men have strange tongue and probably strange dress. They come from far, far away. And they worship the king. I think about that. There's a bitter paradox here as well. For you know these magi who are outside the covenant are doing what God's covenant people are not doing. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the general population, everybody's staying in Jerusalem. There's no mad rush to get to Bethlehem. The roads aren't plugged solid with donkeys and carts and what have you. They follow neither the star nor the word. God's own people remain stuck in their ignorance and in their unbelief. Yes, and you know that too is a sign. A sign of what happens to many in the days to come. Soon John the Baptist is going to appear on the scene. And even Jesus himself will commence his ministry. But then you see it as well. Many people will not budge. They will not change. They refuse to repent and to believe and to rejoice. And yet all the while they consider themselves, of course, to be Jews. You see, throughout history, there have always been people who have attached themselves to the outward trappings of religion. They embrace the traditions and the customs and the forms, and they find their security in them. We are Abraham's children. We are among the circumcised. We are the regular temple goers. And you know, we have these people today as well. We are Christians. We never see the inside of a church, but we're Christians. We're baptized. We're in covenant with God. When we die, everything will be hunky-dory because we live such nice, pleasant, good, sociable, kind, nice lives in this world. My beloved, pious slogans do not save. And religious customs, no matter how good and how worthy, do not save either. Even religious routines do not save. What saves is only faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the face, ultimately, that needs to undergird and support all of our worship and all of our life. Did the Magi possess that face? We don't know. I think if it was important for us to know, God would have told us. We don't know. But I think what the text is saying to us is what's important is what is it that's found with us as the readers 
of the biblical text. Why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we here? Why are we singing? Why are we gathering? Why are we praying? Why are we listening? Why are we offering? Why are we confessing together? There's only one answer. And it has to be because we're full of love for Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, the King of the world, Jesus Christ, our great and wondrous King and Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank you for reminding us once again that the heart and the center of this season remains Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord and King. Father, it's possible to get sidetracked by all the other things that happen at this time of year and to forget what is the real reason for the season. But, Father, help us. Help us to realize that as your children, we are to have this great love for our Savior. That only it is truly able to drive our worship, our life, our work, our everyday existence. And, Father, through the help of your Spirit, Would you give us continued devotion and enthusiasm and commitment to him? We cannot do that in our own strength. But we know we can do it in the strength that you are able to provide through your spirit. In Christ we pray. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.